Podcast of the Cinema. Uh, I'm Alonzo Duralde. That's Dave White. Welcome to our annual special where we look back at 2022. We figured when better than Super Bowl Sunday uh, to take a look back at uh, the year that happened a while ago. But anyway, it's, it's still on our minds. The Oscars haven't happened yet. So officially, we're all still operating in 2022. Why not? Uh, joining us are our uh, beloved um, uh, gallery of, of film critics who join us every year in alphabetical in alphabetical order. Please welcome from the Los Angeles Times Robert Abley, from the Los Angeles Times Justin Chang, from the New York Times Manila Dargis, and from Variety Peter De Bruges. Welcome everybody. Hi. Hello. Hello. Um, so yeah, this past year was. Uh, you know, this weird sense of like Hollywood trying to rebuild the theatrical experience after uh, a year of actual lockdown and a year of people deciding they weren't ready to leave the house yet or really liked streaming or whatever other factors were going on. But the thing that I found kind of nutty, and, and I don't know if, if, if I just am in the hanging out in the wrong corners of film Twitter, but how often I would encounter people saying, there just weren't that many good movies this year. And I just thought to myself, are you insane? <laughs> like uh, there was so much that was, that was really terrific about this, about 2022. How do y'all feel about it? I, Nobody, anybody who says that just doesn't see movies. I mean, they, they, they're, they're thinking only in terms of what a studio released, what uh, Netflix put on their queue right away. It's just like that, you know, they're just not going to all the movies. Yeah. I think that one of the problems is that for very long, people have associated the movies with whatever comes out of the bigger studios, the names right. that they recognize, you know, and I think, you know, I think those of us who are in the trenches as it were know better, hmm. you know, and know that, that certainly for the last 15 years, at least the, the major remaining studios show, you know, basically they, they release a certain type of movie, not very many. And much of the, you know, the great riches are coming from all the other companies that may not have much of a presence outside of the major American cities. And we're just talking about United States right now. And so I think people just don't know this work. And we, it, it's very frustrating, though, because you just feel like we're constantly championing this great work. It's like, see these movies. And you feel like no one is paying attention sometimes. Yeah, not to mention that, you know, those the pandemic, of course, did affect these things. So you had a movie like Top Gun that waited until of course. the yeah, sure. pandemic had passed to come out. But otherwise, it was incredibly difficult to make a studio movie these last two years. So there's just kind of like after a Writers Guild strike, you know, a decade or so ago, you know, like these, uh, that's impacted things. But as Manola is saying, there was never any lack of great alternative options. It was just kind of we couldn't scream loud enough to convince people to see them. We've always, I mean, our job is always to scream loudly for the gems, for the good movies that have always been there, but they are always hard to get people's attention. And post-pandemic, mid-pandemic, it's just become even harder. And movies, as we Absolutely. know, last those good ones last even for less of a time in theaters if they get theatrical distribution at all. And Peter mentioned Top Gun. I feel like it, people... For many people, that was the only movie that was released last year. That and Avatar and maybe Black <laughs> Panther, Wakanda Forever. And that disproportionate emphasis on spectacle, on Marvel movies. I mean, that's always been with us for that's been with us for a while, but it just feels more the case than ever. Well, well it's weird that on the one hand, you have this idea of people aren't going to theaters as much. They are thinking about movies as being something to be consumed at home. And then at the same time, when you press them about what movies did they see or what movies were good, all they think about are what was available theatrically and not about, you know, stuff that was streaming, even though, you know, so it, 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 it's it's kind of contradictory in a way. But I, I think that it's people are, are stuck on the idea of movies in theaters, even if they aren't going to movies in theaters. Maybe. Yeah, I think, you know, when you go see when you read a story that says, 
Well, you know, Ant-Man's coming out, so February will mean box office. Is like, one movie is determining, like, the fact that, like, we'll all go to the theaters in February? That's just nuts. And then also, if you think about the fact that if your usual diet is to go see an Ant-Man, but then you go see, you know, a tar in, a, in an art house, the trailers will tell you also what's coming out, will kind of get you excited about things, but if you're not going to see those, you're not really getting the coming attraction vibe of what you want to see. So it's very different. And let's be honest, like the f- group of us here, the half dozen of us, you know, what we consider to be good movies and what someone looking for escapism or spectacle or something like that are different. But those, I think we're talking about the people who are complaining to us about what we in this room can all, this virtual room can all kind of agree on is as quality, you know, the, the movies for adults that stimulate our imaginations and our brains. But, uh, but I mean, it's not just one movie in February opening. You've got magic Mike and a new Shyamalan movie and whatever this cocaine bear nonsense is. It's like next month, it's like back to back to back with, you know, more stuff. It's like those studio movies are back now. It's just last year was kind of the ramp up. Right, though I think the other thing that was interesting that I don't think was there was enough emphasis on was that those the major studios were releasing what I had what I read and I believed was thirty percent fewer movies than they had traditionally. So that was also very strange. So it wasn't just that there there were just fewer movies out in the world to kind of engage people and kind of keep this idea uh, of that you know this kind of constant supply of work. So I just think like. I think I think some of the problems obviously the pandemic is a very very large problem that you know that just goes without saying but I also think it's a lot about how the mainstream movie industry just seems completely incoherent <laughs> you know whether it's suddenly Warner Brothers putting you know all their movies on HBO you know like just it, they've confused the issue I think maybe needlessly so the pandemic sort of exacerbated things that were already happening in terms of Theatrical attendance dropping off, people uh, uh, waiting for streaming or, you know, being more likely to want to watch stuff at home. And, you know, and and so now I'm wondering, like, there was that moment where I feel like gravity was a game changer in terms of they, they realized that they could get an adult audience to go to theaters to see a movie that was both an adult drama but also a big spectacle and then that led to movies like Everest and other sort of films, I think, that were sort of like, it's on IMAX, but it's about, you know, grownups talking to each other. Um, and that was a moment. And I don't know if we're going back to that moment or if they're going to come up with something else. But I, I think we have, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what is the future for theatrical beyond Marvel style spectacle for mass audiences or is there one? I mean, I think there's so many things in play, including the fact that streaming is just completely incoherent and disastrous. And I think people yeah. are also starting to realize, I mean, first of all, I think like the funniest words in the English language right now is, is it on Netflix? To which I always say, no, like it's never on Netflix, you know? <laughs> and that's like, a good thing. Yeah. And that's a good thing, you know? Um, but that I think people, I mean, when you start adding up how much people are spending, how much are you spending, you know, on streaming services? It's crazy. And I'm like, I long for the old days of having a cord, you know, before I cut it, you know, it was all, I didn't have to think about it. Um, So I think there's a lot of stuff that has to happen. And I think everything is kind of contingent. I do think that exhibition has to figure out how to get people back into the habit of movie going. I think that's a really, like, that's my favorite. I'm borrowing this from the critic David Thompson, he talks about the habit. I think that's really, really important. I think people have kind of gotten out of the habit of like, when I was a kid, my parents went to the movies every single weekend. That was a thing they did, did as young, broke New Yorkers. And I think, you know, whenever, I don't know about you, but I would go to see a so-called art house movie in a so-called art house, and I'd walk in and I'd invariably be the youngest person. Now I'm older, so I'm not so much, but you just were, I was like, they have to grow the freaking audience here because this is really bad. Mm-hmm. And this is all pre-pandemic. So it's the same issues, just as you said, but I think that it's so complex. I think it's every facet of the industry has to kind of reconfigure, realign, reconceptualize. It's a big, it's time for an, a, a redo again, I think. It's part of that habit reforming, um, the habit of <clears throat> going to movies that are not spectacle movies. Um, and Absolutely. this, this idea we relegate now movie going or we don't, but people outside this room, <laughs> people who are not critics, who are not film lovers, um, who, who think that comedy is now the domain of streaming of Netflix, who think that romantic comedy 
Um, everything except spectacle and horror. Those are the reasons you go to movie theaters, and that's right. a terrible state of things. I mean, I, I'm these are two exa- very high profile examples. These are not original examples, but the way that bros performed or very badly performed, the way that she said badly performed. I mean, those are two very different movies, but both movies of a type that were, you know, could be count on an audience. Um, and we can talk about just, oh, okay, all the ways they were mismarketed and all that. But I do think that fundamental to that is this idea that, oh, this kind of mid-budget thoughtful drama based on recent events, she said, you know, based on the Harvey Weinstein story and how the New York Times reporters broke that. It's like, that is something we can see see later or not at all. Um, a romantic comedy, a gay romantic comedy that was, you know, we can again talk about all the ways that was sold or mismarketed or whatnot. But I do think that it's just a sign that people don't go to movies, for, go to the movies for comedies anymore. For romantic yeah. I, I, yeah I, I, something like ahead. The Lost City, which also passes as an action movie. I mean, I think what I go to the cinema for is attention. You know, it's like the, I do not have it. We've talked about this in previous sessions of this, but like, I do not have it at home in the same way. And if, if a movie deserves my focus and most of them do, it's the reason I'm, you know, was first back out there at film festivals. And it's why if there's an option of a press screening versus sending me a link, life might be easier to watch the link, but I would much rather go to that screening. And, you know, I it, just yesterday I went, I've been waiting years to see this Ho Shao Shen movie, Flowers of Shanghai, because I wanted to see that. I love the Criterion channel. I'm sure it's available there. It's available on Blu-ray. Jean Dielman is another film that's like that, you know, that's just topped the uh, the sight and sound list, but it's like, you know, I waited years to be able to see that on the big screen because I wanted to be able to focus and immerse myself in that experience. And Tar is such a great example of that. This year is a movie that is spectacular in certain ways. It's certainly got a different visual language from most films, but to be there with that film and time is such an important part of it. And to just kind of, it, it, it consume you and you, you, you not be focused on a second screen or, or whatever's happening in your you know, your living room is, uh, that is what is compelling me back to the big screen. I'm so glad that there's a reason to go see Tar. Oh, no. (laughs) You know, I've seen that movie four times now, and I had a three-hour conversation yesterday with someone who's seen it 30. Oh, my Lord. This movie is infinitely rich if you want to pick it apart, you know. (laughs) I I do love, I, I am more with Peter on Tar. I love Tar, but I was just, cackling at Manola's cackling at the <laughs> but yes I've only seen it three times so I guess um you know I Manola you have a movie on your top 10 list that sounds uh-oh, like uh-oh, you uh-oh. could not watch this any way other than with your full attention um, oh yeah expedition content which is just a, a, a completely freaky movie that I absolutely loved and really kind of caused me a great deal of problems trying to understand even if it was a movie. Uh, it's an experimental film and uh, I just absolutely adore it. Uh, it's very difficult to see and I wasn't really prepared because for the most of the uh, movie, there's just a black leader, that's all. And so you're not presented with an image. That There are some images, most of it uh, are, are audio tapes. Um, it's it's 78 minutes, and there are basically audio uh, recordings that were made for the making of a ethnographic movie called Dead Birds, 1964. And you're listening to outtakes uh, for this movie, and it becomes, uh, you know, eventually it's about ethnography, but it becomes a kind of commentary about the ethnographic project. And it was very mind blowing. Uh, Dead Birds is by Robert Gardner, his great ethnographic film. How did you see that movie? Did you? I saw it in the movie theater because I couldn't imagine. I mean, I saw it at a, at a screening in a screening room, uh, sure, sure. and it was such an interesting uh, exercise because, you know, the, they're op- I believe that there are opening credits, and then the movie starts, and there's a black screen, and I I had a moment of panic, like, wait. Is it is it supposed to be black? Like, wait, what? and then I just had to sit there. I looked at my shoes. You know, I closed my eyes. I just like it was a very interesting exercise about like what is a movie. Um, but I really liked it, and because it sent me down a kind of really interesting intellectual rabbit hole. I you know it was one of those movies like the rest of my movies on my top ten that I thought a great deal about. You know, long after seeing it. So. But but obviously a movie that like, you know, by giving yourself over to it fully like that, you're able to let it take your mind place. I think another good example that, you know, I didn't respond to as strongly as a lot of my colleagues have, but this movie After Sun is an example to me of a film that the audience makes half of the movie. You know, you're uh-huh. filling it in with all of your experience. Yes. And, you know, she's making this film about memory and about 
this kind of last summer that um, I've been talking about Charlotte Wells's movie After Sun, but the, this last you know uh, summer she spent with her father, who we are not told explicitly how he died, but we assume whether it's an overdose or suicide or just you know disappearance that this was the last significant summer they spent together. And it's done elliptically and out of memories and flashbacks and the present. And all of that is something that I think calls the audience to fill in with their own experience. And that is best done for me, I think, for most of us when you're when you're fully present for the film and it's hard to do at home. Yeah, I agree with uh, that. Peter, since you've brought up Manola's top 10 list, I, I do want to just touch a moment on the cultural firestorm from uh, the idiots at Fox News who decided yes. that uh, you were the new woke standard bearer. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. get it right, Alonzo. Woke antics. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> your woke antics. <laughs> which, which to me just underscores how woke just means a thing I don't like. Like anchovies exactly. on pizza. Woke. You know. It was well, glorious. And I just love that screenshot of um, Fox News projecting Manola's top 10 on their. <laughs> screen and seeing expedition content and good for them <laughs> yeah. that is great yeah. more people now are like what is this yeah, but, but you it know is... it's, it's gonna help the eo bandwagon go get to where it needs to go <laughs> i didn't know that, that it is... happened i didn't mean to pick at something but oh uh, no it really did it was on a hannity show it was actually a and i forgive me for not watching that no i neither did i but it suddenly <laughs> people do watch it and suddenly it was up on your twitter and I felt very I proud. Yeah, I, well, I know not with you, with you anymore, but I felt <laughs> quite. I felt very proud. You know, I felt. Yeah. If I watch movies, damn it, the right people. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but this is what it's like. You know, this happens with you know, it's happened with you and with others with your your fantasy dream Oscar ballots and top ten lists. Yeah, mm. it's like, and what Alonzo's saying, it's like, um, woke a word I just don't want to hear any white person use ever again. Ever. Um, except in except in a in a content to point in, in, in a context to point out how ridiculous it is to, to use it, but it just applies now to just something. I don't know something. I don't care about something. I don't like something that is not on my radar even because you know, those movies, it's not even like, I mean the politics of those movies on the list, they don't even talk. They didn't even talk. Of course they're not, they're not serious enough to like actually think about what are these movies. It's just, well, here's a bunch we, of stuff that I don't yeah. know and you haven't I, heard about. So can, why I call Manola's, can I call Manola's situation the hen in the fox house? Oh, oh. please don't. But you already did. <laughs> uh, no, Too late. I, it, is, it is that attitude that comes from, from the mindset of here's stuff I don't know. Uh, rather than be like, I'm excited to learn more about it. Tell me more. It's you're telling me about a thing I don't already know, which means somehow you are insulting me or <laughs> condescending to me because I know less than. Oh, you. I don't oh, think none of these people. They couldn't we're tell here. you what C critical race theory is. They can't tell you what like this thing that they supposedly hate. They, they can't even describe what it is. So no, but we I are mean, not characterizing this correctly either. I think people are, you know, are second guessing if you know. I realize that like five of the 10 entries on my top 10 list are directed by women this year, which is fantastic. It means that there has been a phenomenon that has brought the opportunity to women to direct movies and I'm responding to them. I'm definitely responding to stories that are different from what I've seen before, but you know, someone else might look at that same thing or pick up on that same statistic and second guess, like, am I somehow projecting my own enlightenment or am I trying to indoctrinate people by something? And it's like, they, but that they, person they, is an idiot and not worth taking seriously. <laughs> I'm not like, saying that they are, like, but I'm saying that's, like, I think, more what's behind it. You know, it's... Yeah, uh, but I think it's, it's like, I actually don't think we're mischaracterizing. I think it's like, I mean, your list and my list and we can pick about our lists. It's like, people just, here's a bunch of titles that are not Avatar, that are not Black Panther, that are not... Talk, uh, everything everywhere, even. And ev yeah. everything everywhere. And we could talk about that, too. And it's like, but it's just, it's unfamiliarity. It's like, they couldn't, you know, yeah, even what, who directed, the gender of who directed your movies, that's another thing. But it's just like, here's stuff that I don't know, that I haven't heard about, and I resent being had to even process it for a second. Oh, right. right we right. live in we live in a world where people want to belong to groups, and that's just basically that's what's happened to the country is that you want to belong to a group, and you want to belong to the group that saw the most that 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 was part of the thing that saw them, you know, the 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 movie that everybody else did. And when you aren't a part of a group, when you look at a list and it makes you feel insecure that you don't know this stuff, you now we're at the stage where we lash out. We don't th we don't think no one's curious about the list. The the first response is to lash out. And that's where we are right now in the culture, and that's what's really unfortunate. 
Yeah, I agree with both of those analyses. But I do think that, like, you know, the the people who come at us, they maybe they come out with us with the wrong language or whatever, but like, you know, they're responding to what they feel like they're being suffocated by a kind of there is a strange uniformity in the critical voice right now. And one one of the things that was great about wait, these what this do you year's mean top by ten that? Wait, wait, what do you mean by that? What was is that the str- it broke what through is, that? What is the uniformity what is the people uniformity? <laughs> I don't think it's just that. I think it's that Twitter on Twitter people kind of signal to Sorry, Robert, can you mute? Thank you. Okay, go ahead. I don't think it's that. I think that on Twitter, like, you know, uh, people are talking to each other before they've written a review. And sometimes it feels like there's almost like you know how those reviews are going to come out, partly because the writers are signaling their own opinion. But there's a way that, like, you know, people are – one of the reasons I don't want to engage with Twitter is because there's this uh, kind of group brain hive mind thing that uh, I don't – particularly like and don't like the way it's impacting you know the if i didn't love after sun that doesn't mean that i hate it or whatever but it, it you know like uh, there's a way that you can almost feel kind of like you have the wrong answer and it's like i loved that part of the critical dialogue has always been hey we're all individuals with different critical aesthetics and uh, we're all responding with our own voices you know you know I just think I don't think this is a new thing. I think that critics, like any other group, are they're tribal, and within that that tribe, there are these sub tribes, and they kind of band together. Because if you read like, you know, histories of like Pauline Kael and Andrew Saris, and like you know how they voted, and like how they are all really nasty to one another. I mean, this is <laughs> you know, critics like to to basically claim things, whether it's a national cinema. I remember you know there were certain critics who basically kind of seemed to own Iranian cinema, which I found is a weird kind of almost colonialist gesture. You know, right. but they've be- <laughs> but they became the experts, and no one else was allowed almost to have an opinion about that, which I thought was really you know absurd. But I just feel like I mean I always think about like the reaction to uh, La Ventura, you know, and and there was so it was such an interesting movie when it comes out about you know people were puzzling, people were angry because they couldn't understand it, and a lot of the discourse was very familiar in a lot of ways. You're like, what is this? This isn't a movie, you know, and it's just art films or films that aspire to art films like Tar are really, uh, you know, they're different. They've always unsettled people and always made people feel resentful in the way that art makes people feel resentful. You know, when people pointed at, it's the old classic thing of pointing at Picasso and saying, my kid could do that. And I just think- The riot after Rite of Spring. Yeah, I mean, I just think that that movies have always existed in this very interesting space, you know, as a commercial art and like, is it an art? If it's a commercial art, is it not? I mean, I just think it lives in this very interesting, confusing space and people kind of try to like claim to that space and argue about it. Uh, so I do agree that film Twitter, which is just a horrible thing that, you know, is someplace that I don't want to live or have much discussion, but I, of course, you know, lurk and listen as much as possible. Uh, so I hear- No, I think your analysis is is great and spot on. I do think that, you know, th- there's a disproportionate way in which Twitter, you know, has a megaphone and the people whose voices are participating in Twitter don't necessarily- represent the loudest voices in other traditional media. It's one of the things that's beautiful about Twitter, but also pernicious. And I I do think that the people who are using the W word are getting it from these megaphones that don't necessarily represent me or represent criticism or represent the media wholly. And it's like, and they're pushing back and, you know, uh, I, I can't identify overly with them, but it's my instinct to try and you know, rather than to be immediately defensive, to try and think like, what is, what are they coming at me with? Where is that coming from? Do I, can I unpack it a little bit? I don't know. The uh, maybe it's the I, raised. I in would Texas argue that you can be on film Twitter and not get sucked into groupthink if you exactly. feel like it. You know, because I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I apply the same standards with that that I do with you know, not talking to anybody in the lobby after a screening. Like I, I don't, I don't read other people's reviews. I don't talk to other people about them until I write mine. And then I put it out in the world and it's done, you know, and, and, and I, I, I'm not going to like, you know, switch from that. And I think that you can still do that and participate or witness or lurk whatever in film Twitter. And, you know, it, it is not in and of itself a terrible thing, but obviously as you're right, Peter, I think it does amplify some voices that are, that can be, you know, antithetical to what we're trying to accomplish here and the conversations that we're trying to have. 
Um, but you know, ultimately, it it is as as you can take it as much or as little seriously as you feel like it. Kind of funny because I like to lurk on Twitter as well, and I don't tweet a lot. I sometimes tweet my work, and even then, probably not as my editors would like me to. Um, I don't like getting in movie conversations on Twitter. I just think you know I have friends like you all that I can do that with <laughs> privately. Right. Life is and too so short. It's, life's too short, and even then, it's like. We can just we can also talk about other things, but it's funny because <laughs> I do think I, I think I I know Peter some of what you're saying. It's like there are certain movies that are Twitter anointed. We can talk and, and to a point where it almost becomes a little performative. I do think that favorites like After Sun, which is absolutely a, a film Twitter favorite. I, I think the love for the movie is genuine. I share I share that love myself. We could talk about even you know the sight and sound poll recently because you mentioned Jean Dielman and these sort of. You know, I, I'm not going to put this all on Twitter. We could say, is it film Twitter? Is it Criterion? Some, you know, holy or unholy amalgam of the two that is anointing these movies. A movie that I absolutely adore and I know <laughs> I think most of us do. It's like Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love, which was like a number five on the list. It's like that is a particular, you know, that movie is, you know, just a little over 20 years old. So we can talk about how these things sort of hasten certain movies entry into the canon as well. Um, that's just, I mean, that's another point to to be picked up or not, but. Yeah, I, you know, when Christy and I recently did a breakfast all day thing where we where we reviewed Jean Dielman, and what I kind of came away with was ultimately the idea of a greatest film of all time doesn't exist, you know, but that if you wanted to talk about movies that changed the cinematic landscape, that that created a new language, you could do worse than start with the four films that have topped that survey in the 50, 60 years that it's existed, which are Bicycle Thieves, Citizen Kane, Vertigo, and, and now Jean Dielman. What I found really interesting about the Jean Dielman backlash, if you want to call it that, was how, how much it called up this thing that I notice all the time, which is straight white dudes assuming that they are the default and that everything else is a variation. And it's like, it, it, it and it's like, oh my God, you're saying. Like Paul Schrader, you're so you're a smart person, and you're saying this stuff out loud, and I can't believe you're doing it because it's just like, could you could we just acknowledge that a thing that isn't about a straight white dude isn't a diversity hire that it's actually a great work of art <laughs> on its own? Like that that was I was gobsmacked. Yeah, you know, and coming from oh sorry, go ahead. No, no, just Paul Schrader. Enjoy his movies. That's all I got to say. <laughs> but it is interesting how I think that that sort of phenomenon of like, you know, it's whether it's hogging the microphone from the point of view of who's been writing and crafting the critical opinion for so long, although there have been many great uh, woman critics. Uh, and of course, the most famous critic ever, Pauline Kael, was you know, it's, uh, certainly in English, you know, like... Um, uh, it was a woman, so it's not like it's only been men, but it's certainly like that has been shaping th this list for so long. And I think so much of those aesthetics are still so much embedded in reviewing contemporary films that are coming out and comparing them to, you know, like Tar is a, a movie whose um, uh, it may be about a, a female protagonist, but it fits kind of like the mold of like these great man stories in a way, you know, like, um, I mean, it's obviously a much more complicated movie than that, uh, but it's, you know, and it's a, a character, a woman who's already at the, on her pedestal when we meet her. And it's only kind of like about, uh, downhill is really the only way for that character to go. But, um, but there's a way in which that movie looks like the kind of movie that has been championed for decades as a great movie. I think there's so much more to that film, but it's interesting that it, you know, um, uh, the we, you know, our own aesthetics are shaped by by other people's aesthetics, and we have to kind of, as critics, learn to trust our our own um, our own responses to these things. Or not? So let's <laughs> Sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> You're you're just getting a tar dig in there. I realize. I, I, like, yes, uh, it's okay. <laughs> I acknowledge this that it's the, not for everyone. This is the light motif for my uh, participation. <laughs> well, uh, you know, okay, because again, we we've been talking about how you know we 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 see more stuff than most people, and we we try to like champion some films. Maybe let, let's talk about what are some 2022 movies that you would really encourage people to seek out and find out there that uh, that you know quite possibly went under mm -hmm. their radar. Um, Manola, what do you got? Oh, 
among other things, I would say, uh, I, and I don't believe it's on. I don't believe it's streaming yet. Uh, is a movie called No Bears by Jafar Panahi, who's a mm. wonderful Iranian filmmaker mm-hmm. who was recently imprisoned, and then he has been since released. Uh, he has been making absolutely. I never want to hear another Hollywood actor talk about how brave it was for them to take on a role because this is someone who is actually going up his government and has been thrown in jail and has been under house arrest and makes really, really wonderful, accessible movies. These are really, you know, I I sometimes feel like when I'm talking about movies that are like off, you know, they're not mainstream movies. It's just that just because they have subtitles, there is nothing difficult about No Bears. There's nothing really difficult I'm using quotation marks uh, for uh, Panahi's movies. They're incredibly accessible. Uh, they're not, you know, it's not like watching paint dry. It's not an exercise in making art cinema. These are very heartfelt, emotional, political movies about about ordinary people living in a very, very difficult, uh, under a difficult regime. And this, he plays a filmmaker named Jafar Panahi, and we're watching his his struggle to make a movie. He's at he's you know kind of set up camp uh, at the border and across uh, in Turkey. He's making is where his actors and his crew is, and he's and it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful allegory of his own situation. And it's it's just a beautiful movie. And once you see this movie, you'll understand this is a filmmaker that you need to know, and you'll be so delighted to know that there are other movies that you can watch that are easily accessible right now. So I would just really encourage people to see what, you know, a really, truly great work of art is. <laughs> no bears. Th- that was in my top five alongside his uh, son's debut feature, uh, Hit the Road, uh, from Panapanaki, which I thought was was exceptional. And, you know, you know I, I think often when, we, when like, the, the son or daughter of a filmmaker goes into the the family business, you know, it's tempting to sort of draw the parallels. And while there's obviously a lot of uh, uh, terrain regarding the politics of Iran that that exists in both movies, stylistically, Panapanahi seems to be operating in a, in a whole different direction that's just as fascinating, but just distinct from what, what his father's doing. I really love both those movies. I'll continue with the, because No Bears was my number one movie this year, and I just, and the news of Panahi's release, I know there's a lot more to the story. I know his struggle is far from over, I'm certain, as as Iran's struggle is, but I, that was just a euphoric moment that I just, <laughs> I think we all just were so grateful that um, oh, that he's Justin, free for now, you know. Yeah. Justin, is that the correct, am I mispronouncing his name? You know, it's so funny, Manola, I am... <laughs> When I when I reviewed No Bears on Fresh Air recently, and they're they're sticklers for proper pronunciation, and I looked I, I looked up everything, and I'm still I I, I am not I, I don't speak Farsi I'm not Iranian, so I don't I yeah. can't be an expert, but I do I I've heard like Jafar and Panahi, um, but I also Panahi. know I, for for most of my life I've been saying Jafar Panahi, and I yes, I feel wait, like right. he they I I I someone. Someone who is an authority on on the language would wait. Someone, if us, someone but, speaks Farsi, who's but, listening to this, let, yeah, linoleum let, podcast at gmail dot com. Yeah, let us know. That would be great. <laughs> but I've been Since saying we love him so much. You know, it would be nice to know to pronounce his name properly. No, absolutely, and I I could be wrong, but I, I I'm just gonna. How do you guys um, pronounce but, the Farrelly brothers? Far Farrelly? Is it like a pasta? <laughs> like there, the other Farrelly brother has a movie coming up in a couple of weeks, and I was. Referring to it to someone, I was like, I don't know the answer, but now that we're on the Fairly. subject of masters Fairly. with Fairly. unpronounceable Fairly. last names, Fairly, that's a kind of easy Fairly. one. Yeah. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I just love, I just love that we went from Panahi to the Fairly Brothers, but um, but uh, as but, one you know, does, as one does. And speaking of filmmakers who keep it in the family, but um, but you know, with um, I would just say about it's funny. I have this. Peter will remember this vivid memory for me of seeing Panahi's Offside in 2007. And I had seen like maybe only one or two of his movies. I'd seen Crimson Gold. I hadn't seen a lot. Um, and I was just, I, I, it was one of the most euphoric movie experiences of my life. I just walked out thinking like, feeling like I'd seen a movie from someone who loved his country, who'd love, you know, and had passed on that love while being super critical of it at the same time and had passed that love on to us. And so since then, Panahi has been one of my favorite filmmakers, and this one, um, just uh, yeah, everything that Manola was saying—it's not difficult, um, and yet it, it it is not like some super self-conscious art movie, and yet 
it does advance the art of the medium in its way. I think that it's, and it was interesting to me to think about in this year when we had so many self-conscious love letters to cinema, um, some of which I like a great deal, including Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, but it's like, here is one that is actually super critical of the medium and super like, here's actually some things that it can't do or things that it gets wrong or things that it distorts. I mean, and that's not necessarily a new impulse either, but I found that just so interesting. It was kind of this chastening experience of like, okay, let's, let's look at, it's, it's all about, let's look at the medium critically, which I think is just what makes it such a great mascot for the year and why it was my number one movie of the year. Uh, Peter? I, I uh, There are plenty, but uh, one that's still maybe kind of like finding its way into the world and is worth championing is Saint-Omer. You know, I, yeah. I, I actually realized that I don't know if it properly actually did release last year. They kind of cheated and put I it on. It was, it was awards qualification last year. And in some Brooklyn theater or something like that. It but was enough, in New York. You know, enough that I was like, uh, as as this is a movie that just really kind of, uh, you know, blindsided me and blew me away. It's, uh, you know, a French director of Senegalese descent who um, has Alice made Diop. a number of, uh, Alice Diop, uh, who's made a number of uh, documentaries. And, uh, you know, all the work that she's been doing in the documentary space is it kind of like informs this one. You know, one of the characters in the film um well, the the film is about a uh, a woman who abandoned her uh, baby on on the beach for it to die, and is tried in a French court for this, and has not at all the kind of uh, you know presence that you would expect. She's not uh, asking forgiveness. She's almost challenging the court to unpack why she did this, and so the whole movie becomes this fascinating inquiry into, uh, you know, kind of uh, all of the factors, which are include such, you know, anti-woke trigger words as, you know, like colonialism and the patriarchy, but it's all, it's, you know, her entire experience has gone into why she wasn't ready to to be a mother. And um, the, and it's all then filtered and framed through the eyes of a, of a, a young, uh, I think she's a, novelist filmmaker but like you know a stand-in for the director herself whose own backstory mirrors very much the one that we saw presented in um uh what was alice diop's uh documentary uh, um, uh pre previous that's um but i mean it's you know her backstory her family the relationship she has with her own mother she is pregnant and so you see kind of like um that's such a smart way of reframing uh, so that it's not me, a white guy from Los Angeles watching this movie so much as the perspective is clearly that of a pregnant woman wrestling with her own imminent, you know, motherhood, uh, looking at this kind of like worst case scenario of what could happen for a woman who's not ready to assume what culture imposes upon women as being all of the duties of motherhood without the support of a, you know, a father figure. I think this movie is infinitely rich. Formally, it's just unlike anything I'd uh, seen before. So she's kind of inventing the appropriate language to it. I mean, I, I think it's hardly my observation, but it's like, you know, movies teach you how to watch themselves, great movies, you know, and this is a, a film that like just, you know, presents a different language and a different pace and you have to kind of adjust to it. You know, another word for tar is that's another movie that like everything is contained in that interview with Adam Gopnik at the beginning that you need to, you know, proceed in terms of unpacking a movie that's presented in an unusual way. But um, I just was blown away by this movie and the idea, I mean, who knows if it really, the fact that it didn't properly open last year, but is coming out any day now, watch for that one, Saint-Omer. Um, I think it's, you know. I mean, I, I think one of the things that's so fascinating about Saint-Omer is, is that most of it takes place in a French courtroom, and which would be a kind of, we've seen a lot of courtroom drama. You know, it's interesting how different filmmakers deal with that problem of that kind of limited space. But what happens, I mean, it's very, you know, it's very gripping. Uh, you know, it, it becomes this kind of circuitry of gazes, you know, between... And there are very few, most of the people in the courtroom are white. They're French white people, right? And then you have these two women of African descent who are there, one who's with the audience and the other who's on trial. And it becomes very electric, 
like where they look and where they don't. And it really, I also said, I mean, just Peter, as someone, I know you, you know, you know, you speak French fluently, I believe. Yes. And you live there. To me, it really felt like it was very much about race in France and the kind of like that, that it was kind of almost France's whole idea that, you know, we're all, you know, we don't look at color. We don't do the American way. You know, we, 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 everyone is French no matter what. And I felt like that, this movie really engages that idea. Yeah. That, I mean, it, it has so many themes that it's dealing with. And it's a movie that whose own language comes out of so many, uh, you know, Chantal Ackerman is obviously an influence on her in terms of uh, it, it, uh, the, the pacing. There's, I think, Agnes Varda, whose aesthetic has informed a number of movies I really responded to this past year, including Happening, Living uh-huh. Among the, yeah. you know, the movie that uh, movie. is a French abortion drama, and it's about a period in um, France when abortions were illegal and the great lengths that this young woman who's a student and who's not ready to dedicate her life to motherhood. So here are two movies about people essentially terminating their pregnancy, one after having delivered her baby. And what a, you know, what a threatening idea that remains in the contemporary present in America in this year, you know, it's like uh, th- these, uh, these movies, you know, speak to us, even though they're made uh, across an ocean, but, um, but they're informed by these, the aesthetics of these uh, woman filmmakers who've come before Varda and Ackerman, um, you know, incredibly powerful things. The the film prior was called new or we uh, uh-huh. um, yeah. Alice Diop's movie. And that movie has, uh, you know, kind of her own autobiographical things that are kind of reflected then when you see that character go back with her white fiance to her own mother and to kind of like um, some of the tensions of that household and the way that there's so much about, you know, uh, immigrant, generational immigrant families and kind of like, you know, the the generation that comes over. My father is Belgian. He came to the States, you know, the um, uh, but then the next generation uh, it, it has different pressures and a different relationship to the local culture. I was, that was the thing I responded most to in the movie, everything everywhere all at once was the immigrant family aspect. Yeah. Of, you know, huh. here. more than the, the multiverse um, dimension, which was almost <laughs> too much for me. I mean, I love the idea of multiverses, but I found that particular <clears throat> one exhausting, but it was great to see this thing. That's like, you know, that daughter who's, kind of the villain character and everything everywhere all at once has a different relationship to so much of America, of the American culture from her mother and the pressures that her parents put on her. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I think that those are, that has been an interesting through line for a lot of films in terms of that next generation, because I mean, my, my parents came from Spain. And so, yeah, I, I absolutely recognize that. Um, And, and I think that it, 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 it you know for for filmmakers it also i think allows them to bring more than one culture to just the work itself in terms of the cinema that their parents knew and the cinema that they have encountered in you know France or the US or wherever it is that they that they wind up um yeah i mean i i i, I feel like on this show i you know we just did our top 10s i'm like I, people kind of know the movies that i've been trying to push them towards but I just want to I want to do one last pitch again this is a movie that is the opposite of an art film that I think in an earlier time would have spawned a franchise and I think just it's just a straight up entertainment that I wish more people knew about and had seen and that was Confess Fletch you know oh yes that's a, I like that movie that was yeah. good yeah like that to me is the kind of movie that like in the 1970s like George Siegel would have been in it and there'd uh-huh. be like four <laughs> very good you know? yes that is very spot on right Right so on. I, you know, I just that that's what I I, I want to you know, and when, when anybody that I have pushed on or that has come back and be like, you're right, it was it was a lot of fun, and so you know, lest anyone think that that you know we're we're all broccoli all the time here, like you know, this is a caramel. <laughs> this is not. Bro- I hate broccoli, so that doesn't work for me. I, I like freaking in terms of the brassicas. That is definitely my evil brassica. So no, I just you know the I don't. Uh, you guys may heckle me for this, but, uh, you know, the movie oh, that kind of, uh, Manola, I invite you to, I know you're waiting, uh, <laughs> to get me back for liking and, uh, monologuing about tar, but like, um, the, the movie father stew, the Mark Wahlberg movie, oh, I think, Oh baby, yeah. I did not see that. I think that, <laughs> I think that movie is terrific. Uh, oh. you know, and it's like, it's a great performance by him. It's a terrific story. 
you know, of this uh, of this guy who's kind of like uh, as far from the flock as you can find, who suffers this kind of like uh, crippling accident, kind of has a come to Jesus moment. Decides Literally, to, right? yeah, uh, decides to sort of like become a priest, and then kind of as he's becoming a priest, and everybody is skeptical of someone from his background and of his attitude. He's kind of like um, uh, doesn't seem devout, but he has a way of speaking to a congregation because he's kind of almost closer to the people than a lot of the the other people in the seminary. And then he's hit with this kind of like debilitating disease. Um, that uh, basically is going to be a terminal thing. So it's the rest of his time is going to be dedicated to being a priest. And I just thought like this, this movie as, you know, just kind of like straight down the middle, well-written, acted, uh, crowd engaging. It is a film with Christian backstory and, and faith, but it's not kind of like an evangelical movie. It's just a great story about a religious person. I was really surprised by that movie. And I was kind of happy to see, I think it was a vanity thing when back in December, Mark Wahlberg kind of brought it back out to remind the world that it existed. It just, huh. it's not top 10 level for me, but it's like, you know, if I'm thinking about when you're recommending movies to people and you realize not everybody's ready to take the stretch of some of a, a movie like St. Omer or Tar, right. you know, like um, that's, you know, that's one that. Yeah. I would say to- Kimmy. Kimmy is a terrific oh, movie. There you go. Absolutely. Yeah. So you know, Soderbergh, it's just, you know, it's a, it's just so good. It's so tight and it's just so streamlined. And you know, I'm I'm Soderbergh is uh, screen agnostic. You know, he doesn't really care if it's released uh, theatrically or not. So this just went to HBO. I saw it projected. It looks great projected, <laughs> as you would expect. Uh, and it's just you know, it's about a woman and who fi- who has a hard time leaving the house. And I thought you know, for those of us who are very, 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 very cautious during the pandemic, I felt very seen by that movie. <laughs> and then it just turns into a kind of great woman in peril movie, and it's just terrific. And it's very entertaining. It's just like turn it on, be entertained for the next ninety minutes. You know, the things that Zoe Kravitz can do with a staple gun are just—I mean, I just. <laughs> It's like, it's like Godard's line about all you need to make a movie is have a girl and a staple gun. That's, um, all, that's <laughs> all you need. And it's funny because it's also just a great homage to Home Alone. Um, yeah. It's yeah. Just, which is, I, know, I, I adored that movie. Um, As speaking of her, <laughs> exactly. speaking of Zoe Kravitz's decision to leave, um, decision to leave, the Park <laughs> Chan-wook <Yeah>. movie. <laughs> um, which is also just one of my favorites. And I'm sort of, it's interesting because we've talking, I know, we, well, you know, I, I actually do care about the Oscars, and I, especially in their international feature category. Um, the fact that they did not nominate Saint Omer or um, Decision to Leave um, says something, I think, especially yes, about it does. their uh, just you know two of the best movies that were shortlisted. I think for that honor, and I mention it because um, because those would have um, brought some not just <laughs> some much needed and merited diversity to that lineup. And Decision and to Leave, which is a movie, to see those movies. Yep. Yeah, and, and this is a movie, and it's funny because I've I've never been the biggest Park Chan Wook fan. I've gone very up and down with him over Me the too. years, yeah. and you know, yeah, I mean, I love I love JSA Joint Security Area, I, you know, and and then um, really turned a corner for me with The Handmaiden, and then this one. Yeah, um, I just thought I, I've watched this movie. I've seen three, maybe four times. Even, yeah, I've seen it three times, and I still partly it's just to get my handle around the on the around the plot, which I still eludes me, and I still don't care because it's just it's just the <laughs> filmmaking is just so. Um, rapturous. So it's just so rapturous, so playful. So uh, just there's an intoxication to just the craft of of how he does things. Um, just it, it's a it's a detective noir um, with a very big and acknowledged burden to vertigo. Um, it's it's you know and and that's that in itself is nothing new. But what is new is just what he does with technology in the movie. I think he's actually made a movie that really incorporates like smartphone technology in in all sorts of like really clever, ingenious ways. That keep you watching, and then beneath this like beautifully constructed surface is this absolutely devastating, almost should have been whatever love story that um, that is just uh, no. I I just I, I can't wait to see that movie again for a fifth time. It is so. really terrific. Uh, people need to see that movie. <laughs> I agree. Just signing on to that. Well, I, I'm going to wrap us up here. I just I think real quick. Uh, you know what what are your hopes for this year? Like what what how do you see the industry kind of returning to pre-pandemic sense, you know, what do you hope audiences 
take a risk on? Like, what's your best case scenario for the next year? Well, I would wish that the that that the amount of, you know the number of movies increases that are released. You know, mm. uh, right now, for instance, when we're looking at new releases, uh, there's a lot of just kind of stuff that I used to think of as like straight to video garbage that is just kind of mixed in, and you have to kind of go through it. There's always a lot of terrible stuff out there. But I would just hope that that everyone can get on firmer ground. You know, Paramount, it's exciting that Paramount is not dead. That's super exciting. And so it'll be interesting to see what Paramount as a studio uh, does. You know, it Paramount is what uh, it released uh, Top Gun. And it has done, it's been actually, I was just so worried that Paramount was just going to go away. You know, that was one of my great worries. Um, but I think Paramount, it will be nice to see if everyone could kind of resettle and then help encourage uh, Americans, you know, and try to like get people back in the habit of going back to movies. Paramount made Babylon too, right? Which was a huge gamble. They did. Yeah, that was a huge gamble. But, you know, they also signed Damien Chazelle. They have a a multi-picture deal with him. So they're, you know, they're clearly betting on him as being more talented than that disastrous movie would. (laughs) Uh, I think it's funny that we didn't talk about that. I think we just felt like we needed just to quietly just move on. <laughs> we were talking <laughs> about the best of the year. Yeah, exactly. Not the worst. Not some of the worst. Uh, but I would just hope that we start to get a sense of equilibrium. You know, mm. I think that there's going to be things that are going to be shut down. Uh, I think that a lot. But again, I am not a business industry, you know, uh, insider. Yeah, but I would really hope that streaming kind of starts to rationalize itself somewhat so that the theatrical can be also re- rationalized because it seems like they're all connected. Yeah, no, agreed. I, I, would, I would love to see them sort of calm down and, and <laughs> not, not throw so much money after something that winds up being elusive and then they just like pull the plug on a bunch of projects. I'm going to jump in and just mention two more movies rather than answering your question. The answer to your question is I want someone to <laughs> save and reopen the Sitarama Dome. But, um, mm, the, yeah. uh, uh, but there are two movies that I thought were pretty under the radar that I think are worth bringing up. One, and they're both kind of like meaning of life movies to me. You know, it's like one is After Yang, which got a fair amount of attention, mm-hmm. especially because mm-hmm. Colin Farrell had such a great year. But the you know director Koganada by having this movie that's about you know kind of a, a, a robot companion uh, family member uh, kind of himself investigating what it means to be human and unpacking that character's memories that are kind of the the robot dies but his you know his memory is is crystallized and it's so beautiful to see kind of both that imagined what it might look like in space but also what what he chooses in these kind of like almost like live photos on your iPhone. It's like he can capture for a minute, a second or two seconds, these little moments. Um, but the other is a movie. I feel like almost no one except for maybe Richard Lawson also saw, cause it showed up on his top 10 list also, but it's you won't be alone. The focus movie by Goran Stalevsky. He's a, um, uh, based in Australia filmmaker whose own instincts are to tell stories about every culture other than his, although this is, you know, um, uh, you know, this one is, uh, why am I forgetting which Macedonian. language? Macedonian. Macedonian, thank you. His, you know, his heritage is Macedonian, and he uses kind of a dialect there that may or may not even exist. But what I love about it, it's kind of like a shape-shifting uh, or, or uh, entity that's kind of a, a witch that, by virtue of this young woman who's kind of uh, been raised, separated from culture, is discovering through each new form she takes, you know, uh, uh, whether it's a, a, a young woman or a, a shepherd boy or a wolf or whatever, uh, that prismatic kind of experience of all those different people in a, in a very patriarchal society, she's kind of discovering what it means to be human and then ultimately falls in love in a way that then it, there's something very, very challenging about the way you have to learn how to watch that movie. It's almost like a, a genre movie made by Terrence Malick, um, which I guess he did at the very beginning of his career. But in this case, like a, um, you know, kind of like what a, one of these kind of like what I call like bizarre house, these a 24 E, you know, style, uh, mind screwy movies, uh, look like, but done in just a lovely way. And I just found that movie opening up all these new insights into the human experience. Um, and I wish people would see it. You won't be alone. Uh, so Robert had to bail because of technical difficulties. So Justin, we're giving you the last word. 2023. Oh, what, what, do you want to see? what a what a challenge. I mean, I. It's funny. I I feel like my hopes for 
audiences to return to movies are sort of bound up in my own need to return to movies because, um, you know, even though it's what we do for a living, I find, yeah, it's like, I, I, I do this thing too, because I'm a dad with two kids and where my wife and I will put the kids to bed and then I'll sneak out for like a 10 PM show. Um, I don't do this all the time because I'm tired and, and, um, (laughs) but often I I saw Skinamarink recently, um, which was a really fun time to see it at 10 PM. Um, (laughs) caught up with it. Like the last week it was in theaters or, or one of the last few times it was in theaters. (laughs) Um, so it's like, I, I feel like just retraining my own habits and, you know, I feel like if I can't, if I can't do that for myself, how can I possibly expect people who don't live, eat, breathe movies 24 seven to, to do the same. And, and so, so that's just kind of my hope. And it's funny though, because I, I am cautiously, super tentatively optimistic about the pandemic. I know there are reasons people avoid theaters that have nothing to do with the pandemic. It's just a learned laziness and I get it, but I do feel, I do feel a lot safer in a movie theater these days. I still mask, I still double mask and I'm probably going to do that indefinitely for a while. But I feel like that's a much safer uh, public activity um, because for the most part, you're not talking and you're just uh-huh. sitting there all facing the same way and just watching watching other people talk um, on a screen. So so that's – I don't know. I'm just hopeful – I'm hopeful that um, not only that there will be more movies released – really, released? Released um, by – Loosed uh, out the world. The, <laughs> unloosed um, movie thou art unloosed. Um, and that they will – and that, you know, I – it's like we all – yes, it was heartening to see big blockbusters do well and say, oh, yeah, they can do that again. But I actually hope that movies that are not blockbusters can do that, that it's not just like one movie dominating the box office for like a whole month. Because, yeah. you know, in a healthy state of affairs, many sure. movies are kind of – that number one spot at the box office goes to a, a wide range of movies and no, nothing holds it for for too long. And I'm really hopeful for the year in festivals and that – that can is great that you know the fall festivals are great um and that you know that's something i hope for that's nothing new but we're, it's, all it's worth, we're idealists ultimately. it's worth adding that you know not to uh, justin you should circle around and have another last word no, but like that's um, totally fine. i do think like you know let's just take a moment to look at what festivals are doing maybe it's because of the diminished presence of studio movies but like at the international renown level it's you know the uh, you had uh, obviously that Parasite became a Cannes Palme d'Or winner that went on to win the Oscar. You had a Sundance film Coda win the Best Picture Oscar for the first time this year. Arguably, the front runner is Everything Everywhere, which is a movie that premiered open South by Southwest. I mean, it's it's showing that like you know uh, festivals, which for a moment looked like they could be crippled destroyed eliminated. South by Southwest was hit almost the hardest in that it, like it sure. was the week after the lockdown when it was supposed to happen and they were forced to, you know, abandon really and, and, and just eat yeah. the loss of that, you know, but, um, in, you know, it's come back strong and it's like, it's really exciting to see that, um, you know, festivals are back as a showcase for all of this stuff. They've bizarrely decided to also champion series television, but I think they're making a statement about the importance and artistry of that form, you know, but, um, the uh, festivals are, you know, so, so much a part of the in-person experience. And it's great to see that uh, Sundance was back in person, but it, it left its virtual component so that people could continue who may not have the resources or the you know, Absolutely. The, the health, safety, yeah. wherewithal, whatever to be there could also follow along. I mean, I think, um, thank God that uh, that aspect of cinema culture seems to be alive and well. Yeah, Justin, you great. want to follow it up so you can. No, that's a perfect actually. Thank you, everybody. Uh, Robert in absentia, Justin, Manola, Peter, thank you. No, we I... love doing this show every year, and uh, it's always great to, to, to have you join us and share your insights. Uh, I hope you all have a terrific 2023. And uh, we'll be back uh, tomorrow with uh, our regular Linoleum Knife reviewing the, uh, the, the films of the week. And until then. Well. You see, I've been quiet this whole time. (laughs) Normally, I would just be saying goodbye, but I have a last word. Okay, please. (laughs) Everybody watch The Cathedral. You can see it streaming on Amazon Prime. Yes. It's It's not broccoli. It's not broccoli. I mean, I like broccoli, too. I like arugula. It's really great arugula. It's super <laughs> yummy, arugula. tender, delicious. It's really a good movie. It's and if not I'm looking too forward long. to something in 2023, it's I want Megan to fight Orphan. 
All right. <laughs> I feel like that was such an insight Manola just provided. It's like critics are not trying to make you eat your broccoli. They're trying to eat, make you eat your fancy broccoli. Yeah. No, arugula, yeah. tender, sweet, lovely, little hint of pepper. <laughs> With some bacon thrown in. You know. Yes. <laughs> but of course, it's also because of the Obama thing years ago. It's also the wokest of all produce. It's the wokest. Exactly. The most wokest. There's a reason I have a W in the middle of my forehead as you all know. Bingo. All right. Okay. Goodbye, Goodbye, loves. <laughs> Bye. Love you Bye. all. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank, Thank you. you.